Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. It's quarantine 90s edition. Welcome to episode 314 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and the reason I say that is you might remember the Biosphere 2 project that happened in the early 90s, two years in quarantine to try to find out if, you know, life could be sustained inside a biosphere. So there's actually a documentary coming out. On May the 8th, it's about Biosphere 2, and it's called Spaceship Earth. And I just happen to be talking to director Matt Wolf this week about that. So when science fiction becomes science fact, basically that's what we're going to be talking about this week. And it's amazing how many interesting parallels there are to kind of what we're going through right now, but in a very, very different approach. So we'll talk to him about that. Going to review some different stuff this week as well. You heard me talk to Sarah Natacheni about... Black Widow, Bad Blood, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about a new series from Amazon called Upload. There'll be some nerd news as well. But guess what? We are reading some stuff this week. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Cullen Bunn, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Pull out the tablet or the laptop or whatever else you might be reading on because it's time for what we're reading, and it might be what we're listening to. Actually, as well, you heard me talk to Sarah Natacheni about this last week. So let's talk about Marvel's Black Widow, Bad Blood from Serial Box. It's written by Lindsay Smith, Margaret Dunlap, Mickey Kendall, and L.L. McKinney as law, along with Taylor Stevens, who is involved in editing as well. And, of course, Sarah Natacheni is the narrator. Now, basically, this is a Black Widow story that you can either read or listen to on Serial Box, in case you didn't hear my interview from last week and what you do get is you get a very I don't want you to get the wrong impression when I say this a very ordinary Natasha Romanoff and the reason I say that at least in the beginning anyway because we get to see she's on a mission immediately in this first episode of this and we'll kind of talk about the first couple since they're both released at the same time no spoilers though so she's on a mission right away And they go into great detail into describing every aspect of what she's doing because you're taking the art element out of this, right? But between the narration and the descriptions that are given in the story, you are, I mean, you're there. And when the action sequences happen, you know, there was actually times where I kind of felt out of breath myself while I was reading it. And that's a testament to the writing and, of course, the narration as well of Sarah Natachini. I, I felt like I was in it. You know, I felt like I was in that battle, and it and it, it got your heart pumping a little bit. So, I mean, that that is exactly what it was supposed to do. But, but the, after the mission begins the intrigue, right? Because something happens after the mission that's pretty significant, especially when you consider Natasha Romanoff and you consider Black Widow and how good she is, the fact that something like this could happen and the circumstances that potentially surround it. Because when this happens, because of... Everything because of the thing that happens immediately before it, it's going to make you question some things and make you wonder who might be responsible for this, right? Because what you do in your in your mind now is you start to come up with a list of suspects. You've got the obvious 
the not so obvious and the completely crazy, right? And maybe ones that you haven't met yet, but what you're going to do is you're going to create the discussion in your mind. But what you do is you get to see a snapshot of, like I said earlier, Natasha as what it would be like if she was almost normal because they're describing the undercover nature of a mission that she's in. And you get and you kind of feel that you feel what how good that feels for her to be able to do what she did in this undercover work. And it's almost like a, you know, can I lead a normal life type of situation, even though she balances the whole. I know that this was short term, but it was nice sort of thing. And, and it makes you feel for her not only not only when it happens, but when it's over, because you know what she's going to go right back into and then you put yourself in that position of well you know if if I had to do this could I just walk away from it it was it's just a brilliantly emotionally written part of this story that isn't necessarily the main point of the story but it really stuck out to me and then when you get to the second episode after this whole event that happens plays out we get to see a very, well, see, I say see, but we're reading it, right? And, or we're listening to it. A very familiar name pops up in this second episode, and you will not be surprised, I don't think you will be anyway, at who Natasha decides to trust. That's that's all I'm going to say. I don't think you'll be surprised. I wasn't surprised. But you also get a sense of some friction in this as well, not just with this particular person, but with others. And there's trust issues there. And and you might say, okay, classic Romanoff, right? Well, maybe, maybe not. And I hope that we get to see this play out in future episodes of this. But I got to tell you, I was thoroughly entertained. It made me want to keep going. I actually went through the first two right away myself. I couldn't wait to get to the rest of it. Go to SerialBox.com. It's Marvel's Black Widow, Bad Blood. This is one that you're going to want to read or listen to whatever you prefer. I'm not going to tell you which one to do. I mean, if you want to read it, read it. If you want to listen to it, Serenatichen, he does a fantastic job with it. So either way, you're good if you want to. I, I would go, I go narration just because it's easier for me, right? It's easier It's easier for me to like listen to in the car or on my phone or something like that when I'm running around. I don't have to worry about the kids knocking my tablet out of my hand when I'm trying to read it. So I go with the narration thing. That's just me reading it. I actually did... I, I got the uh, the script for it as well, so I, I read it and listened to it. Both are amazing. Do either one, man, because this is a good story. I also want to look for something a little family-friendly this week, too. So I went with Archie and Friends, Geeks and Gamers from Archie Comics, like a classic Archie Archie story. So it's Francis Bonnet and Angelo Descarce, Descare, excuse me, Angelo, my goodness, doing the the writing there along with the Pencilers, Pat and Tim Kennedy, Bill Gulliher and Jeff Schultz, inks done by Jim Amash and Bob Smith, Glenn Whitmore on the colors, Jack Morelli on the letters, and Jeff Schultz doing a really great cover with Rosario Tito Pena and Vincent Lavallo. I mean, it's it's an, like a video game cabinet type thing. It's one of those co- covers that really pops out to me. I really, really loved the cover. But what you do is you get a bunch of classically themed Archie stories in this. A couple of them that stuck out to me were Archie's hooked on playing this new game and he's not paying attention to Veronica and she gets pretty upset about it. I'll tell you the name of the game. It's not really a spoiler in the story. So I'm going to tell you the name of the game is Fork Knight and he's playing it with Jughead, which kind of 
you know, is pretty appropriate when you consider Jughead likes to eat all the time. I, what what what's funny about this to me is what Veronica does in response to this, and then Archie's reaction to it at the end of the story. It was it was just funny to me. It, it was it was a it was a very empowering move on Veronica's part. The other story that really stood out to me in this was the was the burgers at Pops. They were they were giving away free burgers from I think it was for a month, and it was Archie and Jughead competing for this, and you had to use the app to go through Riverdale and try and find the find the find the clues to get to to win the scavenger hunt, and it it was just really funny how they went about it, and you know that you know, Jughead's gonna be all in on this right because free food for a month, I mean even free food for a day, I feel like Jughead would fight tooth and nail for, but for a month, come on. Yeah, he's definitely going to go all in for that. So there's a lot of funny things that happen there. There's there's another there's another story with with a little bit of robotics in it. There's a story that has to do with a very uh, well traveled flash drive. I will say that, but it's it just seems like you know in times like these where there's stuff that's super serious, maybe you're going a little bit crazy. Maybe you just want something else that you can do with your entire family that you can read with the kids and and things like that. And Archie Comics. Is is a safe place to do that, and this story, really, really fun, and it, you get that those classically drawn characters that if you read Archie comics when you were younger, it's going to take you right back to those moments with a modern spin on it, but not too modern either, because the, you could actually get caught up in making it too modern, I think, but with stories like this, but this one really doesn't. It stays tried and true to the Archie comics that you might have loved when you were younger, but at the same time, it gets, puts modern elements in there. And it's just a really feel-good story. So if you're looking for something that's kind of a little bit of an escapism that's that's fun, Archie Comics, Geeks and Gamers, Archie and Friends, excuse me, Geeks and Gamers, is a very good way to go there. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, it's time to upload with a brand new Amazon Prime video series. We'll review the first episode, spoiler-free, next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hello, this is Ennis Esmer from Blindspot on NBC, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Imagine being able to choose your own afterlife. Well, that is kind of what's going on in a new Amazon series called Upload that just dropped today. And since it just dropped today, I'm going to go spoiler-free only on the first episode. I don't want to give anything away for you just in case you, you didn't know the show was coming out or you didn't know what it was, what it was about and maybe you're thinking about checking it out. I don't want to spoil anything for you. So spoiler free on the first episode of upload from Amazon Prime Video. And you'll see a familiar face when you watch the first episode. Star of the show is Robbie Amell, of course, who you know from the Arrowverse and Code 8 and a bunch of other stuff. He plays Nathan Brown, who is an app developer. And I should say this is in the future. It doesn't necessarily specify when in the future, but it is further along in the future. There's a lot of future tech involved, like self-driving cars and things of that nature. Again, not really much of a spoiler to say that there's a self-driving car in the future, but let's just say that Mr. Brown ends up in some sort of an accident and then ends up in an afterlife, but not necessarily the afterlife that you might be thinking of because he ends up in a digital space. Basically, this might be a little bit of a spoiler, So I, I but I have to tell you this in order to actually be able to talk about this first episode so you have a couple of choices if you get a chance to make this choice by the way you can either dive natural causes or you can be uploaded 
into a digital life. And there's one particular digital life that you can choose that is like the creme de la creme of digital lives. And it's from a company called Horizon. And that's where we meet Andy Allo's character of Nora. And Nora actually works. She's a she's a kind of like a avatar developer or a or a liaison to those who are in this digital space. But in this digital space, technically, you get to live forever. You get your memories. You get things like that. You, it's like a, it's like heaven with in-app purchases. Is basically the best way I can, I can put it. And you'll understand why what I mean when you see the episode. And basically, Nathan is dealing with the fact that he's got a girlfriend named Ingrid, who's played by Allegra Edwards, and you know he's kind of struggled between you know his life with his girlfriend and his life with his friends and his family and things like that. There's a lot to process for him, and especially in this first episode when he ends up where he ends up, and is he necessarily happy about it or is he not? And that's a big part of this first episode. And even from Nora's perspective as well, you know, does she like the job that she's in? Does she like what she does or not? Or does it become a bit mundane and or even stressful or just plain, you know, I don't want to do this anymore sort of thing. But we get to see a lot of things, interesting things play out in this first episode. I mean, the mental health aspect of this is actually looked at, even though this is somewhat of a comedy, there's certainly plenty of humor in this as well. It's, it's almost like the good place in a certain way, but you don't necessarily in the good place, the choice is made for you. You either go to the good place or the bad place. And in this particular instance, you actually get to make a choice, but we only really get to see, at least in the first episode, one of those choices. And one of the other interesting things that comes up in this episode as well is that heaven is actually referenced in this episode. And it's one of those things where the exploration of someone might choose to dive natural causes and, and go to heaven or, or, or if, and you know, maybe some people don't think that heaven exists. I'm not here to have that conversation, but I'm just saying there might be those who don't think that way and would wonder why somebody would want to roll the dice quote unquote and dive natural causes instead of having this, you know, forever digital existence. And there's something very unique about this digital existence that I don't want to spoil or spoil for you because I thought it was very interesting little side twist to this story and why someone might choose to live in this digital space. There's something that you couldn't imagine that you'd actually be able to do, but you can because of how this whole afterlife thing is constructed. But there's also something a little bit shady going on in this first episode as well that you'll kind of see towards the end of the first episode. And you kind of wonder why this is going on and, and why exactly it's happening to this particular person. But if in the more in the more you think about it, really pay attention to something that happens at a family dinner in the beginning part of this first episode. And that might give you a little bit of a hint as to what's going on at the end of the first episode and why it might be going on. That's all I'm going to give you. Not going to spoil anything. I'm just saying it might seem like an unimportant thing at the time, but it really, really is kind of important. Like I said, there's there's plenty of humor in this first episode, and there's plenty of things that you know will make your make you maybe roll your eyes 
in a humorous way. I think that, you know, the character of Nora is is a very likable character. Quite frankly, she's got a rebellious streak, but she's also got this, you know, when she's when when she's not at work and she's at home, she's a very caring and loving person. And then you've got Nathan, who's Robbie Mills character, who's, you know, got a little bit of an arrogance to him, but he's also got he's got that Robbie Mel humor. I don't know exactly how else to explain it? Whereas every time you see Robbie Amell, he's playing these very likable characters. And he just carries that through into this as well. But now he gets to add a little bit more humor into the mix as well, especially when it, when he's talking to his girlfriend, Ingrid, and their relationship is just a very interesting and unique one. And especially how it already evolves in one episode's time and not even a whole lot of time has passed. So there's just some things that happen to him once he gets into this afterworld that are, that are, that are quite funny and interesting and makes you wonder, you know, if, if this were to really happen to, to me, you know, how, how would I feel? How would I react? Would I want to be in this place or not? Would I think it's the greatest place on that you could possibly go to or not? And they explore the pluses and minuses of that thing. And you know why this might be the better option. It's just very, it's very interesting it's funny. It made me want to watch more and there's 10 episodes in this first season. So I think that that's the best thing you can want, right? Is to want to hit play on that next episode immediately. And I felt that way for several different reasons. So if you haven't gotten a chance to see upload yet on Amazon prime video, I'm just warning you now, you're probably going to want to binge this. So set aside a little bit of time just in case you dig it as much as I did, because I cannot wait to dive into more. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Upload Episode 1 from Amazon Prime Video. Up next, let's see what kind of nerd news we can get into. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Deleep Zeus from Gotham, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Going to the movies might not necessarily be universal for long. It's time for nerd news. The reason I say that is... The big story this week has been that AMC Movie Theaters, AMC AMC Theaters, has decided to boycott Universal Pictures movies because of what happened with Trolls World World Tour. Now, you might remember that Universal released Trolls on video on demand the same day it had a theatrical release. So, there's a lot to get into in the story. I actually recorded this, my thoughts on this, right after it happened when I was good and angry about it. And I'm actually, I dumped the whole thing because there there were more aspects to this that I'd considered after the fact. And I wanted to talk about those as well. It doesn't change my opinion. There's just more to talk about in regards to this. So first of all, as it goes to the whole breaking the code thing, right? There were no movie theaters open that I know of, other than drive-in theaters, none of which are owned by AMC that I recall, there were no movie theaters even open when Trolls World Tour was released. So that wasn't even an option. The only option was to either put it on video on demand or delay it for no reason whatsoever because it's in the can already. And I say no reason whatsoever. I know that there's other movies that are in the can that have been delayed. Disney's Mulan is another. But... Universal, this is a family movie, so Universal decided, you know what, let's cut families some slack and we'll go ahead and release this movie at home to just give people something. And that's what we've seen a lot of 
during this whole coronavirus pandemic, right? It's it's a let's give the fans something like all these virtual table reads and things like that that are happening, which are which are great. The, I mean, the special episode of Parks and Rec that aired this week, right? That probably never would have happened under other circumstances to raise money. Now, the only thing Universal was doing was raising money for themselves, right? Because this they were they did this to make money, and why wouldn't they, right? And they it ended up being the best-selling digital release, you know, in an opening opening weekend ever. And AMC saw that and said, "Don't you dare." Because don't even think about getting any ideas. So now, instead of saying, you know, wish you didn't do that, they're going to boycott movies like what? Fast and Furious, the, the latest Fast and Furious movie. You've got the Jurassic Jurassic World 3 that's going to be coming out. The, the Minions sequel. You're really going to do that? So basically, instead of, they're going to cut their, their nose off to spite their face is what they're going to do. Basically, is what AMC is going to do. So they're already hemorrhaging money. On the verge of bankruptcy, if not bankrupt by the time you hear this, because again, this is as of me recording this, you are on, you know, you are not doing well right now. And you're going to, so now you're going to just not show these movies because of one one example of something that happened. You think that's what's going to get them to stop? Are you kidding me? No, 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 no. They made their money either way. They might not have made as much as they would have if they'd released it in the theaters, but they're still making their money. And they're, and what AMC is worried about is that people are going to get all too comfy with this arrangement of watching movies at home. So they're trying to send a message in what I think is the absolute wrong way to say that people need to have the theater experience. What would, what they should be doing is they should be outlining for people what they plan on doing when they're opening their doors back up. What are you going to do? I'm sure certain movies will go back to theaters that didn't get a chance to before, like Bloodshot might get, like, might get back to theaters, right? Because it didn't really get a fair shake the first time around. I'm sure that some older movies will be shown. I know there's been talk about Avengers Endgame and other things like that. Or, you know, maybe they should be talking about how they're going to have decreased concession prices and things like that. What are you going to do, AMC, for your fans? What are you planning on doing? Because Universal, granted, which still made their money, made it a cheaper option for a family of four to watch their movie at their house, which is not something that you're currently doing. What you're doing is you're throwing a temper tantrum because they broke the code, for lack of a better term, on the theatrical window, of which there was no theatrical window because there was no theater to have a window for. Everybody else was delaying their movies out of the fact that of their own want to make money. You think that Disney delayed Mulan for you? No, they didn't. Disney wants to make up that $200 budget for the Mulan movie, and the only way they feel like they can do that is in the theaters. They don't feel the same way about Artemis Fowl. That's going right to Disney+. Plus. you going to punish them for that, too? Are you going to punish Warner Brothers for putting Birds of Prey out a little bit early on video on demand? And let's talk about this 90-day theatrical window, too, by the way. So, if by AMC's logic, if the, the, if the code was broken by Universal Pictures of this 90-day window before being offered on video on demand, how about the fact that now, maybe AMC should be held to the same standard. Maybe they should have to carry 
movies for 90 days before they can leave their theater. And if you look, if you're rolling your eyes at me and saying that's a ridiculous comparison, no, if we're going to stick to the letter of the deal, let's stick to the letter of the deal, right? And you and I both know, no matter what side of this that you're on, that pretty much every movie is going to make its money within its first four weeks, right? Opening weekend, you're going to make your most money. And then it's a rapid decline. I don't care what movie it is. It's a rapid decline after that with very, very few exceptions. So why not after 30 days put a movie out on video on demand and then maybe you can make a little bit more money than you would have expected. And I realize that that's not something that AMC Theaters wants to hear, but it's the truth. And what they're doing is if a movie's not as successful as they want it to be, in the first week or two, they decrease the amount of showings or they boot it entirely, right? So should that be, so that's okay, but Universal deciding to do what they need to do for their bottom line and their employees and the people that they need to, to keep employed doing, or and by the way, doing something for families. I know it's not altruistic, but it was still something. So we're going we're gonna to villainize them for that but not AMC for doing that on their end when things are all fine and dandy. And it looked like earlier on in the week that Regal Cinemas was going to do the same thing, but then Regal came out and said, no, 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 that's that's not what we said. We're not boycotting Universal. We just like to see them, you know, respect the theatrical window. So what they did, Regal did, was is they said, look, hey, Universal, not cool, okay? Please don't do that again. And that's a warning. You can do that. You can puff your chest like that, warn somebody not to do it again. But at the same time, Regal knows that they're in just as much trouble as every other movie theater chain around the country. And they're going to need movies like Fast 9 and Jurassic World Dominion. Jurassic World 3 Dominion, I think is what we're calling it. And and Minions 2. They're going to need stuff like that once their theaters open back up. So you're not going to just not show those movies. You could say, you know, it's just a few movies. Okay, well, maybe it is. But the, but Universal's also not the only ones that did this. But they seem to be the only ones being punished by AMC. So if AMC is going to act that way, I mean, there's plenty of other fish in the sea, right? There's plenty of other movie theaters to go to. So I'm just saying, this just seems like another bad move and a colossal, colossal just month of them for AMC theaters. Just not good press for them. It's not a good look as far as I'm concerned. Speaking of movies that might actually be happening, according to Deadline, a Transformers prequel movie is going to be in the works. I'll tell you what that means in a minute. But we're going to have Toy Story Story 4 director Josh Cooley going to be directing this as well. And then Andrew Barrer and Gabriel Ferrari, who did the script for Ant-Man and the Wasp, going to be writing the script for this. Now, basically, the film's going to be set in Cybertron, apparently. On Cybertron, I should say. And it's going to be the center of the relationship between Optimus Prime and Megatron. Now, if this sounds something like something familiar that you saw in IDW Comics, it certainly sounds that way, doesn't it? With their new with the new Transformers comics that, that happened not too long ago. I'm just going to say, if this is what it is, and this is what's going to happen, bravo, because this is the kind of Transformers movie that I've been asking for for what seems like a decade now. I don't need humans in my Transformers movies. I just don't. 
I want my move. I want one, at least one, on Cybertron, like it's being suggested here, with just the friggin' Transformers in the movie. Okay, give me that. And if it's terrible, you can go back to doing it whatever way you want to do it. You can you can shove whatever star in my face that you want to to make me feel like th- that you feel like you need to put in there to make me go see this movie. Okay, and you could do it that way. But can we at least try it my way first? And see if it works out because this is the kind of movie I want to see, right? Because remember, there was a time when things weren't so life or death between Optimus Prime and Megatron, if you're familiar with Transformers lore from the comics. So yeah, I think that would be an interesting thing to explore and maybe the t- deterioration of that relationship too, right? And how that kind of went downhill and how Optimus Prime rose to be Optimus Prime because he wasn't always Optimus Prime, in case you didn't know that. I think that's an interesting aspect of the story to explore. And given the fact that the Bumblebee movie worked out so well, go back even further than that, way further. And I think you could really have something here. So why not do this, right? Of course, we're we're not sure when this is ever going to get off the ground or anything like that. But I mean, we're in a giant question mark mode anyway, as it is. This is just a very interesting announcement that hopefully will come to pass. Something that probably won't be coming to pass is any more Daredevil. Charlie Cox sat down with it for an interview with ComicBook.com recently, albeit social distance, of course, to say that Season 4 is probably unlikely. But we sort of knew that, didn't we? He basically says, you know, hey, everybody's moved on to new projects. It'd be really hard to get everybody back and be able to shoot this thing. So I don't think it's going to happen. But he actually went on to say this, too, that he does think that we'll see Daredevil again but just not him. And he says, this is one of the quotes. He says, I just think the best bet for them, meaning Marvel, in the likely in the unlikely nature of being able to get all of us together again, it should be a whole new team. And you know, start again. So basically he's saying the best way to do this is to reboot it. Because, I mean, in theory, you could bring back Cox's Daredevil, right? But that's not the only thing that made that Daredevil series special. It was Foggy Nelson. It was Karen Page. It was, you know, it was Kingpin. It was a lot of these different things. Well, I mean, Wilson Fisk, I mean, well, he is Kingpin. But it was it was the collection that made that series so amazing. It wasn't just Cox's Daredevil. And Cox had was an amazing Matt Murdock in Daredevil. He was. But he wasn't the only thing that made that show what it was. And I think that that's kind of something you can lose sight of now that we've had a little bit of distance from it. Would I love to see that group back together again? And would I love to see Cox back as Daredevil? Sure, but I think that he's absolutely right. You, we, If you're going to do this, you got to kind of move on, right? If you want to see Daredevil again, you're going to have to. And he made the point in, in that same interview that, hey, they've, they've you know recast Spider-Man several times and fans keep coming back. Now, you might think they got the right or wrong Spider-Man a time or two, but at the same time, th- this has been done. And he basically, what it seems like he's saying is if, hey, if it's good enough for Spider-Man, it's good enough for Daredevil, why not go ahead and just recast this? And to me, I do think that's the right call because you're talking about tone-wise alone. Very, very different between the Marvel Netflix series and the Marvel movies. And if you're going to put Daredevil in that world, it's going to have to be a little bit different and there's going to be a stigma attached to Charlie Cox's Daredevil that I just don't think that you can bring in to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And you know, maybe the character just works better on TV, maybe the character 
just, you know, maybe we should just remember this for what it was, a great series. They got three seasons of great TV, and just let that be enough. Sometimes letting something run its course, even if it's a short course, it had finality to it. And letting something be great for a shorter amount of episodes is better than taking the risk of something being stale by dragging it out for too long. Something that we know won't be dragged out for too long is the se- the season one of Batwoman, even though I think it's been a fantastic first season, quite frankly. Every episode seems like it's got that wow moment at the end of it. I know that you've heard me talk about this before and how great I thought season one has been, and unfortunately, it is going to be a shortened season one because the announcement came for the Blu-ray release, and Blu-ray DVD release, I should say, Blu-ray combo pack with the digital copy and the DVD release is going to be coming out on August the 18th from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment. But it is only going to be for 20 episodes. Now that is confirmed. We know that the season was supposed to go on longer than that. But because of the coronavirus pandemic, it got to be cut short. So we know that that will not go back to filming. It doesn't look like. And Cameron Johnson actually took to Twitter to say that episode 20 has a very finale-esque cliffhanger to it anyway. So it looks like that would be a good finale for Batwoman. But what this does is it kind of shines a light on the greater Arrowverse, doesn't it? Because if they thought they'd be coming back to filming to finish this first season, I don't think you make an announcement about your Blu-ray release and put out how many episodes you're going to be if you think you're going to be getting back to filming in time to finish your season. So this could, and now again, there's no confirmation on this at all at this time, but this seems like it could affect The Flash. It could affect Supergirl. It's not going to affect DC's Legends of Tomorrow because they were able to finish their season. And so had so did Stargirl. Stargirl hasn't premiered yet, but we'll, we, will, we will get a full season of Stargirl because that one wrapped up already. But this could be a signal that we could be looking at shortened seasons for The Flash and for Supergirl as well. And who knows how those episodes would work as finales. Now, is it just because Batwoman's works out well they decided to say you know what let's call it at 20 and let it be that because we feel good about where we're at so let's not try to get back to filming for this because we feel like we can work with with 20 as our finale but maybe that's not the case for flash and supergirl so they feel like they do have to get back and be able to do more episodes of their season i don't know it's just i feel like this is an interesting sign of what's potentially things to come Really quickly, I want to talk about the trailer for Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which is going to be coming out, hopefully, in the holiday of 2020. And basically, the main character for this name is Ivor the Viking and can be male or female, by the way. And it actually tells the story of Vikings going to England to kind of start new lives there. And you get to see the two different perspectives, the perspectives of the king of England and the perspective of the Vikings, how the king sees the Vikings and how the Vikings actually are. You know, the the king sees the Vikings as savages, but maybe the Vikings are not savages. Maybe they're just people that want to start better lives elsewhere, and they do it by sometimes very, you know, forceful means. Although you do get to see some restraint shown by the Vikings while they're maybe, you know, you want to call it pillaging. Maybe you don't. I don't know what you would want to call it based on this trailer. They seem like pretty, you know, normal people. But then the battle is on between the Vikings and the King's army. We get to see that on full display 
in this trailer. The game looks so immersive and beautiful, whether it be the trailer or the screenshots. It just looks like this could be first impressions, right? Because you never really know until you get your hands on it or until you see more. But this just has the makings of what could be the best Assassin's Creed game in a long time time because i mean first of all it seemed like when everybody was doing pirate games recently in the last couple of years right assassin's creed said you know what ubisoft went ahead and said you know what let's do let's do vikings instead everybody's doing pirates we're going to do vikings and i think this one is going to work out really well and in the line in the trailer that everybody's talking about odin is with us bone chilling love that line and we get to see a lot of that battle, and this maybe looks like the most cinematic of all of the Assassin's Creed games as well, which is saying something, because there's been a lot of great visuals in Assassin's Creed games over the years. You could just add this one to the list already, as far as I'm concerned. So hopefully, get a chance to get our hands on this in the holiday of 2020. It looks like it also will be coming out for PlayStation 5 and Xbox One X. Other than that, you know, Stadia. It doesn't look like, it looks like the only one not on the list is Nintendo Switch. So that's a bummer. Maybe that'll happen sometime in the future. We'll just have to keep our eyes open. It's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, we're going to dive into the world of Biosphere 2 and talk to director Matt Wolf about Spaceship Earth. We'll do it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Josh Gates from Expedition Unknown, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, you might remember a little something called Biosphere 2 that happened in the 90s, but it turns out there was a lot more in the works much before that. And you'll find out more about that in a new documentary, Spaceship Earth. And we just happen to have director Matt Wolf with us this week. Matt, how you doing? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Doing fantastic. Now, for anyone who doesn't know, your film documents the 1991 Biosphere 2 project and the people involved with it. What interested you the most about taking on this project? Well, Biosphere 2 is this enormous terrarium in the Arizona desert that had a miniature replica of Earth's ecosystem. And then eight people who called themselves Biospherians went to live inside of it, sealed for two years. And when they came out, they had a different perspective about our planet, which they called Biosphere 1. So this whole premise of a group of people who were literally reimagining a world and how they might sustain it was really was really compelling to me. But the way I got into it is I first saw an image of them on the internet in these bright red jumpsuits, almost like the band Devo. And I thought it was a still from a science fiction film, um, but it didn't take me long to realize that, in fact, they were real and this was a real project. And as soon as I realized that, I was determined to tell this story. Now, obviously, at the time, there's no way you could have known that we'd be dealing with this COVID-19 pandemic and going through these stay-at-home orders and things like that. So do you think there's some parallels that could be drawn with our current situation and the Biosphere Project? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uncanny. When you make a documentary film, you expect that things won't go as planned, but it's so rare and strange when something you make takes on this new kind of significance. When we were at Sundance, I never could have imagined that me and and everyone I know would be quarantined, just like the Biospherians. Mm -hmm. So... You know, I, I like to think of it in, in a certain sense about transformation. The Biospherians, as, as you might learn in the film, um, they went inside and when they came out, they were transformed because inside Biosphere 2 during their quarantine, they could really see the consequences of their actions. So when they came out, they had a new perspective on how to live sustainably on Earth. And I think and I hope that might be the outcome of what this whole quarantine and the pandemic might be is 
we all might band together to think about how we might reimagine the world we, we knew before this. Now, Matt, there's a lot of words that have been used to describe John Allen. A lot of them were actually quite positive, especially in, in your film. So what was it about him that you think drew people to him and making them want to work so hard for him? I think John saw potential in people that they didn't know they had. A lot of the people who came to Synergia Ranch, the, the sort of commune that he started with others in the 1960s, were really young and they were aimless and they were looking for meaning in their lives. And I think John, John saw in them that potential that they didn't necessarily see. They, they had a theater company called Theater of All Possibilities. I can imagine being in my early 20s in the 1960s, this idea of all possibilities. I mean, it's really inspiring. And I think he kind of pushed people from behind to, to, to see their potential and to pursue anything that they imagined could be possible. Now, there's a lot of science involved in Biosphere 2, obviously, and your film actually does a really good job at looking at both those who felt it was legitimate and those who kind of felt like it was flawed. So how important was it for you to balance those two sides? Well, yeah, I just I didn't want to make a film that idealizes this group of people who invented Biosphere 2. I think they're inspiring in that they had visionary and unique ideas, but also what they did was controversial, and in some ways it was flawed. And they were really pursuing a new kind of science, a a uh, total systems approach in which they put all this stuff together, all the things that might constitute a whole ecosystem, and they see what happens and they measure and observe. That's not how typical science works or what you might call small-scale experimentation with a hypothesis and, uh, you know, two samples to compare results. I think this, this is a different kind of science, and it was also pursued outside of any academic or government institution, um, and so in a lot of ways, it, it could have been perceived as a threat, but also um, these guys didn't have conventional academic credentials, with the exception of the Cruz doctor, who is pretty wacky himself. So um, I think for, for real reasons, the project um, raised eyebrows and skepticism amongst people who were part of the mainstream of the science establishment. How much of a role do you feel like the media played in the overall impression of, biosphere, of the Biosphere Project? The media totally uh, elevated and then tore down the project. And I think that happens a lot with the media um, because the Biospherians kind of put it all out there. They, they were, as I said, theater performers. And Biosphere 2 is this kind of theatrical project, a case in point being those red Devo uniforms. But um, when you go on the world stage, you need to be prepared for the scrutiny of the media and these guys weren't prepared for that. And when the media started to uncover more details about their backgrounds and, and some of the controversies surrounding John Allen and, and the scientific critique, they shut down. They weren't transparent with information. And, and I think when people don't feed the media the information they're seeking, it, it creates a lot of skepticism and suspicion. And when that started to, to um, surface, the, the project really... Um, the project really took a beating. We're talking to director Matt Wolf, who, of course, is the director of Spaceship Earth, which you can get everywhere digitally on May the 8th. Now, Matt, one of the more interesting figures in this story, to me, was Ed Bass. Now, unfortunately, we don't really get to hear from him directly other than the footage that was captured years ago. Were you hoping to get more from him, especially since, as of 2017, he was actually still contributing to the Biosphere Project? No, I didn't approach Ed because I wanted to focus on the group of people who conceived the project. It wasn't a film that was really about the relationship between 
Ed and John Allen and, and the, the disillusion of that collaboration. Uh, from my point of view, Ed Bass was this kind of benevolent benefactor who um, saw the potential in John's ideas and was willing to make a long-term investment. He wasn't looking for short-term profits. And it's so rare that somebody sees that potential and is willing to take that risk. And Ed Bass was that person, and he's continued to be a, a dedicated environmentalist. And as you said, he, he recently um, made an ongoing commitment to um, the work that Biosphere 2 is doing. So, um, you know, I, I thought his, his legacy speaks for himself, and I didn't need to include him in the film. Now, your film also shines a light on the fact that there were some who actually believed that those were loyal, that were loyal to John Allen were more of a cult. Well, that wasn't a huge focus of the film overall, did you want to include? Did you want to include that and let viewers kind of draw their own conclusions? Absolutely. I mean, the synergists had a, a kind of complete lifestyle, um, a, a, an overall philosophy. They were workaholics. They pursued all of these projects. They um, did theater together. They traveled the world together. Um, I don't think it was an abusive cult in which they had no choice and and surrendered all relationships and and were brainwashed, but. It was a way of life, and it was unusual. I can only imagine that people from the outside thought it was weird. Um, I didn't think it was that weird. I thought it was interesting. I'm interested in counterculture and uh, intentional communities, you might say. But um, I was interested in how counterculture um, collides with mass media. If you become a pop culture phenomena, but you live an unconventional life, how do those things work together? Can you really be on Good Morning America? And I think they had a harsh awakening when, when they saw how those two things are sometimes not reconcilable. Now, whether the Biosphere 2 project is ultimately seen as a success or not, because things are kind of still ongoing, for many years this group of people were actually able to accomplish some pretty amazing things before that, before the Biosphere project even happened, with seeming little resources at first. So if nothing else, do you feel like this film can serve as an inspiration to those who might think they don't have enough to start that dream project of theirs? Totally. I think in a lot of points while making the film, I thought this is really about human achievement. People can achieve incredible things if they put their minds together, but they're not going to do it alone. Um, they have to put their minds together with like-minded people who share their goals. And I think the film is super inspiring in the sense that people can accomplish incredible things. And we're in a position now where that's how we're going to have to think to move forward. So I hope this story resonates in that kind of way for people. Now, Matt, before I let you go, after gathering all of this footage, talking to so many of the people involved and getting a chance to really study so much of what happened, what do you think were the biggest lessons learned from Biosphere 2, both positive and negative? I think the biggest lesson is that closed systems can work. Biosphere 2 didn't work. It had flaws. But sometimes when things don't go as planned, that's when you learn. And I think if this project had continued for the hundred years that it was designed to exist, that it would have gotten more and more refined so that we would have created a system in which people could live sustainably. And that might be informative for Mars colonization, but even more so, I think there are lessons to be learned in that about how we all might live more sustainably on our planet. Um, in terms of what went wrong, I think that there was a hope and a dream that something so expensive and so experimental could last for a hundred years. How it's not so feasible. It would cost millions and millions of dollars to run that thing. It costs 200, over $200 million to build. 
And I think while the project was searching for environmental sustainability, it wasn't economically sustainable. And that long-term vision that Ed Bass had proved not to be able to last for 100 years. And what's amazing about this movie is it's going to feel like science fiction at times, but it's actually science fact. And find out for yourself by watching Spaceship Earth digitally everywhere it's going to be available on May the 8th. And you are definitely going to have a lot of discussion with people after you watch it. It's director Matt Wolf. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad I got to talk to director Matt Wolf about this because there were so many things about the Biosphere 2 project that you might not have known, whether it be the people involved or things that might have happened that you might have forgotten. Or if you didn't live during that time period, you're thinking, you know, how, why did this not work? Why could this not have brought us all this amazing information and helped us look toward the future? And maybe in certain ways it did, maybe in certain ways it didn't. You, you just have to see for yourself. And you see how eccentric the people that were involved in this project really were. And you can draw your own conclusions from that. Basically, it's not just a documentary that gives you the information in hand. It's one that's going to make you think. It's one that's going to make you wonder, you know, could this be something that we could sustain in outer space? Could this be something that we could learn a lot of lessons from? Why haven't we tried to do another one of these projects? And could it work then? And, you know, it kind of puts new perspective on quarantine life as well. So when you see Spaceship Earth, you will understand a lot of these different things, and you can see it on May 8th everywhere you can get your movies digitally. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to director Matt Wolf of Spaceship Earth for joining me this week. You want to find out more about us, though, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Also, follow along on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.